week's podcast episode is sponsored by Views and Cues, who make their really neat Royal Caribbean scratch-off poster. When you buy this wall-worthy hanging post, you can scratch off each Royal Caribbean cruise ship that you've sailed on, and it even includes Odyssey of the Seas already. This is a great gift for any cruise fan or yourself, and looks great on your office wall, cubicle, or even your kid's bedroom. Remember what ships you've loved and which ones you need to sail on next, and check out the Royal Caribbean scratch-off poster available at Views and cues.com. Welcome to the Royal Caribbean Blog Podcast, a weekly look into the world of Royal Caribbean cruising. I'm your host, Matt Hotchberg, and this is episode number 406. Maybe you've heard the term dry dock, but what happens during a dry dock and what is it all about and why are they so important? This week, we're going to talk all about Royal Caribbean Cruise dry docks. Here we go. Royal Caribbean just finished up a dry dock for one of its ships, Harmony of the Seas, and another ship is heading for a dry dock as well. But what is dry dock? What does that mean? What does anything mean in life? Well, we'll get to some of those questions here today on this episode and joining me to talk about dry docks and everything that it has to do with whatever happens in those things is a good friend of mine, Commander Don Goldstein, retired United States Coast Guard, who has over 32 years of experience in marine matters and also loves to go on Royal Caribbean cruises. Don, welcome to the Royal Caribbean Blog Podcast. Hi, Matt. How are you today? Excellent. Excellent. It's good to have you on here to talk about dry docks because, you know, part of this is, I think, number one, maritime matters are sometimes less understood by the general public. But also, I think the the notion of what happens in dry docks is also a little confusing because you see a lot of words thrown around, Don. You see amplification and and upgrades and dry dock and refurbishment and I'm sure other marketing slogans. But, you know, right now, a lot of cruise ships are going through what's just a general dry dock. So let's start in the in a very basic general sense. If you were to say, retired Commander Goldstein, what is it? What happened? What is a cruise ship dry dock? What would you say? What's the what's your 30-second answer before we jump into the longer answer? You gotta remember that uh, you can't see the hull of the ship, the outside of the hull, while the ship is in service. Uh, it's impossible. Uh, the underwater body like they need to. So all uh, commercial ships every five years has to go into dry dock so that they, all of the underwater body and all the opportunances, the official word can be looked at. Is it fair to say, I've always described dry docks as kind of bringing your car in for ma- regular routine maintenance. You do it because you want to obviously make sure that there aren't problems down the line. Like you change your oil every X thousand miles and so forth. Is that a fair assessment of what the typical five-year dry dock plan is all about of, on, on a very basic level? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. It's it, We have to, uh, on a regular basis, every five years, take a look at all the, the things that we can't see from the inside. So it's, it's routine stuff. It's done every five years on every commercial vessel. So how long does a typical dry dock take? Uh, again, for not, assuming, of course, we're not talking about upgrades and new water slides, which will add to the time, obviously, but for a cruise ship to come in and get a dry dock, how usually how long are we looking at here? 
it depends on what they're doing. If they're just doing maintenance work, it can happen in as little as probably 10 days or so. Um, if they're doing like they just had to do with the lure and then change out one of the azopods or do a major repair on one of the azopods, uh, it's going to take a lot longer. You know, it could be up to a month. Um, I used to do them on a lot of the Alaska tankers, and those would take us about two weeks. Let's talk about that a little bit. What's your experience with dry docks? Obviously, you were not just doing cruise ships. There were other, you just mentioned a tanker. So talk to us about your experience with them so we can kind of get a better sense of, you know, what you've seen in your day. It's, it's really kind of interesting. Um, you pull me, we've got dry docks all over the country that do various grades, various sizes of ships. Um, I did the, the uh, Trans-Alaska Pipeline System, the TAPS tankers in Portland, Oregon. They have a 225,000 deadweight ton uh, lift there. It's a very, very large dry dock. So we would do all the tankers and we bring them in and we raise them up and, and you inspect the entire bottom of the vessel. Um, where the, uh, the the water for the to cool the engines is brought in through openings in the hull. It's called a rose box. It's kind of a a box, a metal box with a grate on the outside of it, and then a large pipe anywhere from twenty four to thirty six inches. Um, and you go <laughs> to inspect the inside of the valve. It's kind of strange. You have to kind of put your feet into the pipe first, and then kind of wiggle yourself in with a flashlight so they can close the valve. So you're inside the pipe with the valve closed so you can inspect the backside of the valve. It, it's a strange process. I, I, is that an OSHA approved um, <laughs> procedure? I can't imagine there uh, be any danger with that. Jeez. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. So, so you just hope your buddies on the outside will open that valve back up again. Now we might be going, actually, I was just thinking about this. Obviously, you're not doing the work in the Coast Guard. So talk to us about what happens from an inspection standpoint, because the ship gets brought into a shipyard, right? Is it fair to say the work gets done and then they have to get some sort of uh, maritime approval? Is that fair to say? Yes. And frankly, the Coast Guard does very little of it anymore uh, for the most part. And in other countries, their their version of the Coast Guard uh, has never done an awful lot of it. Uh, most of it is done by what are called classification societies, and there's a number of them. Uh, the primary one here in the United States is American Bureau of Shipping, although there's several others, Detnorsky, Veritas, and some others that, that actually do it. They're civilian. Um, it's a great place for ex ghosties to be employed, I'll be honest with you, um, <laughs> particularly marine inspectors. But for the most part, it's a, a, it's a commercial concern the, uh, that does the inspections. The Coast Guard will spot check those invest inspections just to make sure that ABS or DNV are doing their jobs. But for the most part, it's done by them. And when we're talking about where the work is done, you can't just bring a cruise ship the size of Royal Caribbean ships to any old uh, port out there, right? Oh, no, no. Like I said, uh, all the, the tankers on the West Coast, the Alaska tankers, um, which are 200 to 225,000 deadweight tons, they all go into Portland because it's the only dry dock big enough to take them. There is a graving dock in uh, Southern California that can do it, but it's a lot more expensive. So right. um, that's why they go to places like Cadiz, you know, where, where they have the large docks uh, that can actually lift the ships out of the water. Right. There are a handful of them that I'm aware of. One is in Cadiz in Spain. Uh, I believe Freeport Bahamas can do some of the work, not all of it. Uh, I remember when that crane fell on Oasis, she, she was actually there for an unrelated thing, but then had to go back to Spain in order to get all the work done. Uh, I believe as well, there's one in Singapore or somewhere in Asia, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, I've actually been to the one in Singapore. Oh, you have? Yeah, I inspected some, did some inspection work there on a, a U.S. vessel that was over there. So how are the facilities set up? I mean, is it just basically like a large 
it's like bring your car into a garage. I'm going to keep using this automobile example, but or metaphor, but like, you know, is it just the, they, they back it in, lift it off the, out of the water instead of lifting your car off the ground and drain. And then they just start going to town in, in terms of the work. Yeah. There's two different kinds. One's called a graving dock. And that's uh, basically you close, you pull it in, you close the doors and, and drain the water out of it. Um, and it's, it's, it's an amazing process to watch because, of course, they can't just set the thing on the ground. If they could, then you couldn't see the bottom. <laughs> so they have blocks, uh, keel blocks they're called, that, that set the, the vessel sits on while it's in the dock. And that's whether it's a dry dock. When the dry dock actually pumps the water out, you pull it in, and then they pump the water out, and it lifts the boat out of the water just because of the buoyancy of the, the dry dock. Graving dock, they drain the water out. So they do the same thing, just slightly different way. Interesting. And... What happens to the crew members during the dry dock? Most of them are off the ship. Um, there is a, a, a small technical crew that will stay on board um, just to make sure that, that they're getting what they pay for. It's primarily an engineering crew, although some of the deck officers will stay on board because they do refurbish all of the life-saving equipment. The reason they do this uh, every five years is to check the condition of the hull and all of the firefighting, primary engineering uh, systems like propulsion, electrical, and the, the safety of the passengers is the navigation system and all of the life-saving equipment. So all of the, the light bolts are inspected, all of the light jackets are inspected, um, all of the navigation equipment, the, the rudders, the steering, um, the electrical system uh, is tested in the conversion from regular power to emergency power. It, it's quite a process. Now, it's interesting, the five-year thing, someone, I, I read online, so it's got to be true, Don, that, uh, <laughs> that after a certain time period, I don't remember if it was 20 or 30 or 25 years, that that period, that five-year rule changes. Is that true? In some cases, yes. It depends on the service of the vessel. Um, it can go down to two and a half or three. Oh, it goes down. See, I was, I read, I could have sworn it actually goes up from that point, but that makes more sense. Obviously, as the ship ages, just like a car, right? It's going to have more of a need for regular maintenance. Yeah, the concern is, I mean, um, steel rusts. That's as simple as that. And 99% and of these ships are made out of steel. Um, so they just, they have to check the condition of it. And as the hull wastes away, you, you, it can only get to be so thin, you know, before you just have to start replacing the hull, parts of it, all of it, whatever. Um, I mentioned the rose boxes where the where the water comes in. There's a lot of turbulence around that suction area. So rose boxes, we check the we use ultrasound to check the the thickness of the metal, and those are replaced fairly often. So what's the most common work that is done? If you were to pick out the top, you know, three or four things that they do during a dry dock on cruise ships, anyway, what would you say are the top most common things that get done during a routine dry dock? Cleaning and painting the hull um, is always done. Anytime you take it out of the water, you you do that. Again, you, you're going to check all of these. The uh, open any opening in the hull gets looked at very very carefully. Whether it's the uh, bow thrusters, or whether it's the penetration for the rose box, or whether it is in you know the larger ships, the azopods, all of those get significant attention while it's in the dry dock. A lot of times, some of the, the interior stuff will, will wait until after it's out the dock because they don't have to have it out of the water to test it. 
You know, it's interesting. You mentioned painting, and that that brought to mind actually some interesting debates among cruise fans. You know, certain ships seem to how do I say this? They they seem to to rust over a little more faster than other ships. Certain fleets of ships also in terms of that. And obviously, I don't think any cruise line wants the appearance of I think you know doesn't want their ships to look rusty, perhaps. But obviously, being in seawater, it's a natural thing that occurs. My question for you is, why do some ships seem to rust more than others? And is it pure, is it purely aesthetics when it comes to, obviously, I'm not talking about letting it languish for decades, but, you know, if you're pulling into Nassau and you see perhaps another cruise line that has a certain motif on their top deck that reminds people of a certain aquatic mammal uh, and there's rust on their hull, uh, is that more than just simply aesthetics or 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 is that different? Uh, some of each, it, it depends on how much there is. Um, I mean, a little bit of, we call it running rust. Um, it can come from just a, I mean, a pinhole leak in, in paint or pinhole in the paint, um, can produce quite a bit of red running rust. So it's just a maintenance issue and, and how much, uh, a vessel owner is willing to put into the maintenance. Um, you've got to sand it down and repaint it to, to stop the running rust. It drives my wife crazy because I'll be sitting out of my balcony and checking out where you really can't see from the outside. You'll there's a there's a lot of little points that any place there's a well, um, have, you have the risk of, of having running rust. And I'm always watching for it. I just can't help it. I, I did that for 30 years of my life. <laughs> it's like a, mar- a retired marketing person who watches commercials and be like and just shakes their head and drives their spouses crazy with with all the nitpicking that you can spot. Uh, I've, once you know, you know, right? Absolutely. And I do, I can't help it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So it it depends on on what's important to the company. Um, Royal Caribbean has always impressed me that they keep their ships looking nice. Even the older ships, you know, that I like sailing on, on the radiance class and and the vision class. Um, And those are the oldest ships in the fleet right now. And I, they still, they are in good shape because they keep up with that kind of maintenance. They don't wait for dry docks with the exception of the underwater body. And they have no choice on that. What's the, is there a particular story or I don't want to call it a horror story, but like, is there, you know, just like, again, bring your car into maintenance. Sometimes you bring it in and it's a, uh oh, you know, until they pull it up, uh, you know, open the hood up. They don't know this. Is there a particular uh, story or instance that comes to mind when you think about kind of like, you know, what's the, I don't want to call it the worst case scenario, but something along those lines where there was a surprise, not a pleasant one after the ship got into dry dock. Yeah, it wasn't on a passenger ship. It was actually on a tanker, um, a tank ship. And this is in the era of the Exxon Valdez. And by the way, just my one claim to fame in the Coast Guard was I was the last Marine inspector to look at the Exxon Valdez before it hit Blyde Reef. So (laughs) I'll be sure to update the Wikipedia post after this recording. (laughs) Yeah, please do. The other inspector's name was Kevin O'Day, by the way, who just retired from the Coast Guard also. (laughs) But anyway, and that was a long time ago. We got a we had a ship came in for just a routine dry dock into Portland and uh, it was one of the large, it was equivalent size to the Exxon Valdez um, and she came in and we were looking at the underwater body and there was a 17 foot crack in uh, and it was right in the middle of one of the plates uh, it was amazing this is these are all single hull tankers they they're not now but then they were mm-hmm. they've double hauled them so I mean they we had to we didn't know what caused it. Um, so we had to keep the ship in dry dock until we could, we cut out that plate and sent it to metallurgists in New York. And they finally figured out that a 
arc strike is what caused it. You know, when you do when you're welding and you have to hit the the uh, the wand on onto the metal to start the the arc, right? They didn't go back and cover up that little hole that it makes. And this this was a uh, it looked like a fish hook, but the long part of it was 17 feet, and it all started from that that quarter of an inch hole depression in the plate. Wow. And they didn't discover that until they got into dry dock. That's great. Wow. We did. They did not know that. Well, I shouldn't say that. They knew they were leaking, but they didn't know where it was coming from Uh, until we got it up on dry dock. So would you, that's probably the worst case. Sure. Would you involving a dry dock? I've got some other horror stories that (laughs) maybe we can do over a Kraken or something. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, Would you say that, the majority of dry docks are pretty routine. Nothing exciting happens. They come in, they get the work done, everything looks fine, and they're on their way? Yes. Um, rarely do you get those kinds of surprises. You, you normally know what's going to be done. Um, you've got the, the equipment, you've got the people, you've got whatever replacement parts you need, and you just get it done quickly. Remember that ships only make money when they're sailing. They don't make money when they're in the dry dock. So... Successful companies are very careful to have everything prepared, everything ready to go, the right people, the right equipment in place before it ever starts. Interesting. You know, it's the dry docks are something that obviously happen a lot. And, um, you know, traditionally pre-COVID, Royal Caribbean would would usually take that time because you're just like you just said, taking a ship out of commission for weeks, probably and in most cases, at least a month um, is obviously counterproductive from a financial standpoint. So they would try to time the upgrades, you know, in terms of like adding water slides and new restaurants with a scheduled dry dock. And, um, you know, but the, the good thing is obviously number one during the shutdown, while Royal Caribbean has paused all of its amplifications. So like Allure of the seas, Explorer of the seas, uh, Liberty of the seas, adventure of the seas, they were all scheduled to get new water slides or, or restaurants or anything like that. Anyway, that's all on pause till further notice because that is just basically frivolous spending. But the maintenance work, the importance of to keep the ship seaworthy uh, is still going on. And, you know, that's kind of the distinction when we talk about dry dock versus amplification versus refurbishment versus whatever else the marketing department wants to come up with. You know, it, it, it's important to know the difference between them. And in some cases, ships go in for just simply work to be done. This is usually the case with the older ships in Royal Caribbean's fleet, the Radiance class, the Vision class, and before that, obviously, they're not part of the fleet anymore, but the Sovereign class, they would go in more for just simply, you know, obviously keeping them up to date, but not necessarily enhancing the ship, so to speak. Right, refurbishment usually refers to painting, replacing carpet. Sometimes, you know, they'll have to do, uh, replace some plumbing in the in the heads in the in the cabins, whatever, you know, that that's usually what we refer to for refurbishment. Um, And that's basically no, nobody looks at that. Coast Guard doesn't care. ABS doesn't care for the most part. Um, So that that's what they're talking about there. Amplification. That's something very different. That's changing the nature of the vessel, Um, putting on unbelievably wonderful water slides, which I was supposed to see, of course, with you on, last year <laughs> but we didn't get to go together um uh, it's it's too soon to talk about it. i i still can't talk about it it's it's a very sensitive subject <laughs> i hear you but yep. what is it 32 days i think today yeah we're we're getting closer to adventure of the sea so at least we got that to look forward to thank goodness so 
All right, well, uh, there you go. Don, I really appreciate you joining us here, talking about dry docks, what they are, what they aren't, and uh, giving us a, a, an idea of what really goes on when these occur. So I appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. Absolutely, no problem. You know, I'm happy to share anytime. Time to answer your listener emails. This is the part of the episode where I read the emails that you've sent in and uh, we answer them right here on the podcast. If you want to send me your emails, you can always do so by sending it to Matt at RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com. Matt, M-A-T-T, at RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com. Our first email this week is from Brian, who writes, Hey, Matt, during your YouTube video of 20 Royal Caribbean tips for a better cruise, you recommended to bring your bathing suit on vacation day so you can use the pool right away. We've done this in the past, but I don't recall if both parents need to be at the nursery to sign our kids up or if only one of us needs to be there while the other one plays with our two younger ones in the pool area. If I remember correctly, you also recommended being at the nursery area right away when they open, which I believe is around 1 p.m. to sign your kids up. We have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. We have only used them once in the past, and I think if we were allowed to sign them up for 10 hours during so the week or on the first day, then we could sign up for additional hours on day three. What is your strategy for times you pick for signing your kids up on day one. We just did it during our dinner time for days two to seven. Thanks for the input. Love listening to the podcast, YouTube Live, Facebook Live, and Twitter. Brian, thanks for the email. So a couple of questions here to be answered, and I love these. We haven't talked about this in quite a while. Number one, you need to have the kid there. You don't need all adults, but you need to produce the body. That was the joke I used to use before COVID. <laughs> anyway, uh, you need to bring the kids to the nursery or Adventure Ocean, whatever the case may be, to sign them up. They got to see the kid there. But yes, if uh, you want to tag team this and let leave one parent with some of the children at the pool while the other one brings them in there, you can absolutely do that. That's fine. Just make sure you bring the kids with you. In terms of the strategy, my strat I can now share the strategy in the nursery because I don't have kids who are in nursery age. Thus, I'm no longer uh, in the market to try to compete with all of you for nursery hours. So Brian is right. In the beginning of a cruise, and we'll use a seven-night cruise as an example, they limit the amount of hours you can book in the nursery initially so that everyone has an opportunity to book nursery time. But after day two or day three, they would open up to anybody and, and you wouldn't have a limit there. My strategy was this, Brian. Whatever the limit was, uh, whether it's seven or 10 hours, doesn't matter. I would purposefully get reservations in with less time than I actually wanted. So what do I mean by this? I would make reservations for, let's say on a seven night cruise, you know, one or two hours a day, every day at dinner time, so I could be assured that they could take the kids. But I knew that I would need more than one or two hours. The thing is, once you're in the system, I found in my experience, and your mileage may vary, that they would be more willing to extend your hours than if you're not in the system, you don't have a reservation and they're full. Because again, they staff it up based on how many kids are gonna be there. And if they already got the staff there, keeping your kid an extra hour or two generally wouldn't be a problem. That usually worked most of the time. Occasionally, like maybe once or twice, they would have told me, check back a little later if we have availability for that. But anyway, that would usually be my strategy. The other one, of course, is just front load it all and then hope for the best. I mean, I was always surprised how few parents took advantage of the nursery. I mean, I get it, it costs extra, trust me, I understand that, but to me, it was with the, the best money I ever spent was taking my kids and dropping them off at the nursery because it allowed for me and my wife to have some alone time, especially at dinner or going to see a show. You need to have some separation, and the kids love the nursery as well, so it's not like this was like torture for them by any means. So anyway, there's different strategies, but I think towards the end, Brian, I was doing the short little bursts and then I would extend it. And obviously I'd be very aware of when you could then go back later, like on day three or so, 
and get more time and then I would expand everything I had from there. But having a reservation in the system was more important than anything else in my opinion based on what I saw. So hopefully that answers your email there. Thank you, Brian, for the email. Our next email is from Ron Sicko who writes, Hi Matt, I booked our first cruise on Oasis of the Seas for next June for my wife and I, our 25th wedding anniversary. Our two adult children will be joining us across the hall in a Central Park room. Since our family are big foodies, I was considering adding the dining package for the week. My concern is being our very first cruise, is it a good idea? And is it possible to make a res restaurant reservation for four people being that we're under two different stateroom reservations? And second, if there's one thing on the ship not to miss, what would it be? Rod's a great question. Your first cruise, here's what I would tell you. I would absolutely recommend getting a dining package, but don't do only specialty dining. What I, what I think you should do is purchase the three night dining package and then supplement that obviously with your main dining room. I think as a first time cruiser, you gotta experience the main dining room. I love it. Some people love it or hate it more than I do. That's obviously up to them. But I think what you should do is plan on doing, you know, three or four nights in the dining room, three nights in the specialty restaurants. And right, maybe one day you wanna do like, you know, just the, the wind jammer for dinner because you're coming back from a shore excursion, something like that, you could do that. But anyway, my point is, is don't just on your first cruise do only specialty dining. I think a three night package would be the way to go there. And yes, you can absolutely do it from multiple reservations. Now, if you buy a dining package, this is a moot point, Ron, because when you buy a dining package, you can't make reservations in advance. You have to wait till you get on board the ship to do so. So in this situation, you won't need to worry about that. Once you're on board, you just need your stateroom numbers if you're good to go. Um, if you were to book actual individual reservations, like maybe you're saying, you know what, Matt, we just want to do like, you know, one night here and that's it. That's fine too. Then yes, you can book, you just need their last name, which I'm pretty sure you know your adult children's last names and their reservation number. And when you go to add them, you know, you go to book it, I should say, it will give you the option for how many people in your group. Okay, now you're going to select four or eight or whatever it is. And then there's an option to add other guests from other reservations. And then you'll need the reservation number and their last name. Now, in terms of Oasis of the Seas, if there's one thing not to miss, my goodness, I mean, where do I start? I will tell you this, don't miss the Aqua 80s show in the Aqua Theater, it's fantastic. It's my favorite Aqua Theater show. It's so fun, so unique, Aqua Theater in general, that is. Check it out, that'd be my one. I mean, Ron and I could go on here and list out probably 10 other things you should definitely see, but you asked for one, so there's your one right there. Thanks for the email, Ron, I appreciate it. Next email is from Harold, who writes, Hi, Matt, I wanted to thank you for all you do. I've been trying to get my wife to take a cruise for quite a while. She was very reluctant to do a, due to a bad cruise experience she had with her ex-husband. Finally, after several years of me begging, we decided to do a little bit of research and we ran across a post on YouTube. And after listening to your incredible descriptions, we decided Royal Caribbean was the cruise line for us. We followed all your suggestions. We booked the trip on Allure of the Seas in May, 2019. We flew in the day before, prepaid all of our gratuities and booked the drink package so we would not feel troubled with whether or not to have a drink at the pool or wait until dinner. We had a wonderful time and fell in love with cruising. When we returned, we showcased our trip photos and videos with our kids and they decided to book a family cruise together. We have three kids, 28, 26, and 17. This would be our last chance before our youngest ran off to college, our middle child started her new career, and our oldest started a family. After watching our home videos, we decided to watch a couple more Matt videos and immediately booked a cruise on Symphony of the Seas for April 2020. We were fortunate enough to get three balcony rooms side by side and work directly with Royal Caribbean to find two rooms adjoining and three right next door. Additionally, Royal Caribbean agreed to open the balconies between the three rooms. So we had three rooms with three bathrooms for six people. What an ideal situation. 
My wife and daughters were able to pre-plan all of our onboard entertainment to include shows and escape rooms and all dining options we were planning. It was going to be an epic trip. Then literally days before we were set to go, the dreaded email from Royal Caribbean suspended cruises came. It's now 2021 and my wife is all excited to start cruising again. Unfortunately, my son is starting college in the fall. My middle daughter has just started a new career and has a boyfriend and they're in the process of moving in together. And my oldest daughter and her husband are expecting their first child anytime now. Not wanting to lose the momentum I gained in 2019, I talked my wife into booking a cruise. We choose September 2022 for two reasons. Number one, to ensure the cruise lines get all the procedures worked out. And number two, to ensure we do not miss out on the first few months of our newborn grandchild. We do hope to get a family cruise in. Hopefully, this cruise will stimulate our kids and we can once again try to get in that family cruise. Harold, what a great story, even though obviously it didn't work out for you on that second cruise with the family. What a great idea. Family cruising, multi-gen cruising, my goodness, it is what I think makes cruising so much fun, so unique and appealing, quite frankly, uh, that you're not all just joined at the hip, walking around, doing the same thing all the time. You can do your own thing. You still have a great time. And I, I, number one, I'm really glad you convinced your, your wife to give it another try and that you loved it. And I love your plan coming up for 2022. It's it's a it's a pretty good plan, logically speaking. I mean, you're 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 pretty set up there. So it's fantastic. I'm really glad to hear, obviously, that you're enjoying the content here at realcreamblog.com. But more importantly, that you've got some awesome plans coming up. And I hope that you're able to go with your extended family now. It's even better to do it that way. I mean, I, I mean your original plan was good. Don't get me wrong. But you know, I, I hope your kids also realize. Um, while you know, if you're saying, Hey, let's go on another cruise after this awesome cruise that you and your wife are going to have in September, 2022, you know, it's very easy to fall into the, let's wait for the kids to be a little bit older and this to happen and that to happen. And this like, yeah, you come up with a million excuses why you shouldn't, but do it anyway. Kids are young. Great. You'll still have a great time on it. It's a family trip together. That's the most important thing. So Harold, I look forward to the next time. Well, you can send me an email before this, but I look forward to reading your email at some point. It's 22. What, what episode will be up? That's like episode, I don't know. Are we up to like 500 at that point? Anyway, I look forward to reading an episode, uh, uh, email on an episode about your amazing cruise and how back in 2021, when you read this email, everything finally came to fruition and you had an awesome time. So thank you. Uh, Harold for the email. And we have time for one more email this week, and that is from Chris Fletcher, who writes, Hi, Matt, just finished listening to episode 404. You got an email from Ian who was wondering whether it's better value booking his in-laws with this platinum crown and anchor status. My understanding of the crown and anchor program is that the person with the highest status, their, sta their status is applied to the booking for each person in that room, regardless of the other person's status. In that situation, two couples traveling with the same status levels would potentially benefit should they split up. Each cabin would have one person on each status. In this case, one person with platinum, one person with gold. They could then just move back to the correct rooms once on board, as long as both rooms and balconies, there should be two balcony discounts. And during the cruise, all passengers should be considered platinum for that cruise and qualify for better onboard offers. I also think this would work for the drinkers of, of alcohol as well. I can drink all day and make great use of the unlimited drink package and have so in the past when I could book a package on my own. However, my partner doesn't drink anything apart from, you know, water, tea, and dislikes alcohol and soft drinks. As we occasionally travel with friends, booking rooms by drinkers and non-drinkers seems to get around the cost of having a partner, my partner pay for a royal refreshment package, which they wouldn't really use should I elect to get the unlimited drink package. Just as a final point, I absolutely agree with Julie. A Royal Caribbean group cruise from Australia would be amazing. However, cruise from Sydney instead of Brisbane. 
It's a four minute walk from the train station to the cruise terminal and the sail away from Sydney is one of the most amazing experiences. Seeing the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Opera House and the main dining is always amazing. Keep up the great work. Us Aussies are all living through you at the moment considering you'll be cruising in a few short weeks and we're unable to leave the country or cruise from any Australian port. Chris, thanks for the email. It's a great tip right there. Actually, two tips I think you included there about the drink package and the balcony idea. Obviously, it requires that exact scenario to play itself out right in terms of the amount of people and the right status and all that. But everything Chris said is correct, but you know, that kind of cruise hack type move, which is fantastic, does require a certain scenario. Like not everyone can apply that, obviously that, that, that strategy, but it's a great idea, Chris. And I appreciate you sharing this uh, with us because you never know, maybe they could uh, take advantage of that and have a better situation. So um, hopefully Ian gets to benefit from your experience as well, Chris. And thank you for the email. Thank you to everybody for sending in your emails this episode. If you want to send me an email that I can read here on the podcast, you know what? The queue is not very big, so I get to it pretty quickly. Send it to Matt at RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com. Matt, M-A-T-T, at RoyalCaribbeanBlog.com. So until next time, I'm Matt, and we'll talk again real soon.